Good morning. Uh, my name is Kim Collins. For those of you that I don't know, I am Director of Alumni Engagement, and I'm excited to be here to welcome Mindy to speak today. Uh, we're delighted to have Mindy with us. She's the editor of World Magazine and has been reporting for World since 1986. If you're not familiar with World, it is a unique publication committed to reporting with a biblical perspective, and I would encourage you to check it out and making it one, make it one of your sources for news. I've known Mindy for 13 years and enjoyed getting to work with her when I was on staff of the World Journalism Institute. Mindy generously took time from her busy schedule as a journalist and as a wife and mom to come teach young journalists in our courses. She has covered war in the Balkans, Sudan, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, and has given on-the-ground news coverage from around the world. Her reporting has been published in the United States and overseas and has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal and the Weekly Standard. Mindy has appeared on national television and radio talk shows and speaks frequently about persecution and survival in the Middle East. She and her husband, Nat, have four children, three of whom are Covenant grads, and one is a student here. You probably know Sarah. Mindy's book, They Say We Are Infidels, tells the story of Christians threatened by ISIS in Iraq, and the tuck shop has some copies for sale, so if you're interested in buying one, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, would you welcome Mindy? Good morning, Covenant College. It's really fun to be here. Just want to repeat one thing. The talk shop has some copies on sale. Uh, no, thank you, faculty administrators and students. What a warm place this is for me to be. Real privilege. And what a brave man is Chaplain Lowe. Inviting, inviting a journalist here in the week after a bruising election season. We journalists do have the lowest favorability ratings even below our two leading presidential candidates. <laughs> but you are people I know possess a wide view of what God is doing in the world. And you are sitting here on this great mountaintop where we can, um, I think it's a fitting place for us to look today beyond the politics of 2016 and to consider other lands, other people, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East. I want to talk about them this morning. What can we possibly do about so war-torn a place? What can we possibly learn and pray for among so decimated a people? A few years ago, I was challenged, could I write a book about my reporting in this part of the world, focusing on what was happening to the Christians and retelling their history and their pending extinction um, from the land that really is Christianity's birthplace. This project began with the appearance of terrorists and jihadists we know today as ISIS or ISIL or Islamic State. And the history that I was writing 
you might say, was unspooling right beneath my feet. And I started out to record it. I discovered that it had a message. Today I'd like to challenge you with some of that message. It's a message, I think, for our time, for our identity and our purpose, even right here in the United States. I traveled to Iraq for the first time in 2002. Here we go. Uh, just months after 9-11, after attending a series of meetings in Syria and Lebanon aimed at promoting dialogue between Christians and Muslims, uh, we, know, um, we knew by this time the United States was going to war in Iraq, and I wanted to get a lay of the land. I crossed the Tigris River in, yes, this small outboard motorboat, uh, in order to avoid Saddam Hussein's regime. He um, insisted on minders for every journalist, and Americans weren't getting in very easily there. You might call this the legally illegal way of getting into Iraq. I had to have help from Kurds, and the dreaded Syrian intelligence service had to take a bad plane from Damascus to northern Syria to an area that is even as we speak under ISIS control. Uh, had to have a number, and so I wrote it on my hand, and I showed it to a man on the banks of the Tigris River. And um, then he gave me permission to get in the boat, and I crossed. Keep in mind that I was moving from the, Iraq, uh, from the Middle East um, that was welcoming of Americans to the Middle East where Americans were the enemy. It was a time of great uncertainty. Think back with me. America had been attacked. Anthrax attacks had followed. We did not know from whom or from where. Bleach gas masks were actually desk items in Washington, D.C. Um, and our enemies were still somewhat of a mystery to us as we crossed into this new post-9-11 territory. And I want to say, as I think back about that time, that striking out on such a trip into enemy territory is something everyone should try, at least once. It forces us to depend on others, starting with that man right there. It helps us to realize that always, always we are dependent on others. And in enemy territory, we have to depend on people who are not only different, but who we don't know quite what, whether they mean good or harm for us. This is a great learning experience that I think we need more of in our own country. Surprisingly for me, on such a trip, I made friends. I met Americans working quietly outside the headlines, um, involved in medical care and education. I met Kurds, a special people group that Saddam Hussein had tried to wipe out over the past decade. I met Iraqis who were committed to rescuing their country from this dictatorship and to resisting its ties to terrorism. This would all be helpful to me as I returned again in 2003, just months after the war began, for US, um, the US-led war began. This time I flew into Baghdad, legal, and I traveled with an Iraqi Christian woman who was in her 40s, like me, and a mom, like me, named Insaf Safu. Nine years before, 
Ensaf, her husband, and her two children have been forced out by Saddam Hussein for reasons I won't go into. Everyone had those kind of stories in those days. And this was her first trip back, her first time to see relatives in all that time. And she was hoping that her family would be able to move back to Iraq, to what everyone was at that time calling a new Iraq. Ensaf turned out to be more than I bargained for. She was an Arab Christian. She had been raised Catholic um, to attending mass, but was, uh, became a born-again believer in her teens. And she was fearless. She had lived in three countries. She didn't know how, what it was like to meet anyone except a friend. Through Insaf, I would begin to see Iraq different uh, or differently than what the headlines were portraying. I would see its diversity. I would see its many ethnic and religious groups, not only Sunni and Shia Muslim groups that we always hear about in the headlines, but its Kurds and its Christians and its Mandians and Sabians and Turkmans and Shabak and Yazidis and even more. After all, this is the cradle of civilization. Remember, this is the land of Mesopotamia between the two rivers. John Calvin was so sure this land hosted the Garden of Eden that he included this map to show it in a popular 16th century Bible. The hopeful days of those early years of war for Christians meant that they were hoping to return, that churches would be reopened, that freedom of worship would be restored. But they quickly gave way as we know, as Islamic insurgents targeted Christians and targeted them many, in many instances with impunity. In Baghdad, a team of pastors I knew disappeared, never to be heard from again. On one Sunday, six churches were targeted simultaneously for bombings. Many people killed. It happened during worship services. And I would meet scores of people kidnapped as young as Danny, this eight-year-old boy here, and as old as Odisha. Um, Odisha was a, a well-known Assyrian leader in his 60s, and the ransom demand for him was $300,000. This was a cottage industry that ISIS picked up and is using to this day in targeting Christians because no one is protecting the Christians. They have no political protection no law enforcement protection, the kinds of things we take for granted. Odisha managed a mad escape involving a tractor and a shepherd. You have to hit the tuck shop and buy the book to read about it. We've learned only recently that in order to survive, the prominent Christian clergy, leading Christian clergy in the city of Mosul, a city that's been now under ISIS captivity, ISIS control, that the leading clergy in that city for years paid extortion money to Islamic militants, and even those men were killed. Yes, Muslims were being targeted. That's a question I hear a lot, and we know that Muslims have suffered and were killed. But I, <coughs> excuse me, what I want to submit is that Christians were being targeted for their belief and the goal with the Christians was to eliminate them. By 2007, 2007, a group calling itself the Islamic State of Iraq had sprung up, and it was centered in Mosul. The terrorists bombed churches, continued kidnappings and threats, 
and the Christian neighborhoods in Baghdad and Mosul were emptying. About 40,000 Christians that year alone left those cities and moved out into the wide expanses of Nineveh Plains. These are things we weren't hearing about in our headlines. And this is a history that I think is significant because what was happening to Christians years before the rise of ISIS or Islamic State um, was telling us what we could expect on a global scale. We knew that by not protecting these vulnerable minorities, we were allowing seeds to be sown for a wider and greater calamity, the kind of calamity that we have seen unfold in the last couple of years. In 2014, the same Islamic insurgents who had taken refuge in Syria and, um, and were the beneficiary of a lot of weapons coming out of Syria's civil war, um, moved across Iraq into, moved across Syria, excuse me, into Iraq and captured territory within 60 miles of Baghdad. Then in the space of two months, conquered all of Mosul, a city of two million, and then all of Nineveh Plains. Along with Muslims and Yazidis driven from their homes, this effectively made homeless nearly all of Iraq's Christian population. These are pictures that have become familiar to us as ISIS moved into these cities, marked Christian houses, herded people out. We don't really know how many Christians were killed. We know thousands upon thousands of Yazidis were killed, but we do know that about 150,000 were made homeless. The Christians fled, leaving everything they had behind. We saw pictures like this and pictures of their exodus, which still, even to this day, is remarkable to me for its size and scope. It looks like something from biblical times, and it is because the times we are living in are biblical times. Time when God is continuing to work through the suffering of his people, a time when, human, when he's working not only in human hearts, but in the movements of nations and people groups. This humbles me to think about what God is doing through these situations. Iraqis I interviewed at the time were dodging bullets in their nightgowns, truly, as they fled their homes for safety. One woman described putting her wedding ring into her baby's diaper. It was the only thing she had of any value, and she wanted to try to save it. Um, another woman whom I interviewed as a refugee in Europe this summer described how her husband was asked to convert at the point of a gun, and he said he would not, to convert to Islam. He said he would not, and he was shot in front of her and in front of her children. The Iraqis found quarter in church sanctuaries like this and courtyards. And British historian Tom Holland said, we are witnessing something on the scale of horror of the European Thirty Years' War. Jeffrey Goldberg, a journalist many of you may be familiar with, writes for The Atlantic and other publications, and who has long covered the Middle East, he said, the most undercovered story these days is a sustained assault by Islamist terrorists on Christians. I don't know why, precisely why, this story and the stories like it disappear so quickly.
can read the rest. Though I assume it has something to do with the unwillingness of Christian churches in the West to stand up for their persecuted brethren. Not only the churches, but international bodies, Western governments, and we, the American Christians, showed little interest in a concerted effort to win back these territories and provide some sort of safe haven for displaced Iraqis. The crisis grew. I won't go through the numbers, but you can look at them there. And for two years, with Christianity now on the brink of extinction in the region, the situation remained unchanged. Iraqis were living in temporary limbo, in a temporary uh, limbo. Besides journalists and historians missing the story, we Christians, I feel like, have missed the treasure. Because if we consider what happened, Iraqi Christians faced with a life or death choice told in the middle of the night to convert, to flee, or to be killed, they laughed. And they laughed because giving up every earthly treasure was the only way they could hold on to the one treasure, the one pearl of great price, and that was their faith. Think of these people centuries past. I once met an, um, a lay deacon at a church in Baghdad, and when I asked him to tell me his story, he said, I have 32 archbishops in my family tree. This is a lineage none of us in America can fully comprehend. And so you think about the armies of Muhammad moving across the Arabian Peninsula and into Mesopotamia, and the Christians by thousands at that time, a millennia ago, converting to Islam because they were faced with a sword. In this Christian remnant, in this 21st century, having survived Mongol invaders, Persian conquerors, and the Islamic armies, said no. We'll leave. We'll give you our deeds. We'll give you our houses. We'll give you our cars. And we'll leave. Pastor Tim Keller says the best pride is, quote, faith in what God intended when he made you. The identity the Christians had held on to was only one thing. It was their identity in Christ. And today, we have this question that faces us, and I feel like it faces your generation in particularly intense ways. What is your identity? What is the one thing you will hold on to? In a culture awash in choices, choices that become idols, don't they? And choices that we um, sometimes things that are imposed from the outside, things that we impose on ourselves, to be pressed into identity makeovers upon makeovers, makeovers based on our team, or our tribe, or our economic rank, or our race, or our sexuality. What is the one thing that you, my friends, will base your identity on? I love this millennial generation. 
When I was in uh, Greece reporting on refugees this summer, I saw over and over again that it was 20-somethings like you, people in their early 30s, who were on the front lines, who were manning the refugee camps, who were doing the counseling, playing guitars with refugee children, doing artwork. I saw a young woman managing an art show for refugees at an, air, uh, an airport uh, where refugees were living on the outside of Athens. You are, do not believe the press about your generation. You are a generation that lives unencumbered and lives out, and you have so much to contribute to a world that is in a lot of chaos and a lot of dysfunction. Father Douglas Bozzi was one of the, um, he was a Chaldean priest. He is a Chaldean priest. He actually is still alive. But he was one of those threatened by ISIS, and he had been threatened for years before by other Islamic militants. He was actually detained and beaten during this time period that we're talking about in 2014. He even had some teeth knocked out. But he managed to be freed, and he stayed on in Iraq, and he set up a refugee camp for the displaced people, bringing in storage containers for them to live in. Father Bazi said, we are not angels about his fellow Christians, but we have grace from God. ISIS during this time, he said recently to the United Nations, um, he said, has, has, has attacked us with genocide, but then he said, genocide for us is a polite word. Please find another word. In Iraq, being a Christian is a suicide mission. And one day in Iraq, four dioceses disappeared. And yet somehow, as I was chronicling what was happening to these fellow believers, as I was meeting people like Father Bazi, I began to think of my journeys to Iraq and to Syria, and then to the refugee camps in Lebanon and Turkey and Greece, as journeys to find water in the desert. How is this possible? Cut off from outside support, left without an international plan, for providing these people safe haven, any kind of protection outside of the help of the Iraqi Kurds in the northern corner of the country, the Christians started caring for one another. They came to represent for me this fellowship of suffering that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians. They displayed what it means to be conformed to Christ even into his, unto his death. As Christians were being driven out of Nineveh Plains, the Christians living in the safe areas further north literally came down to meet them, literally rescuing them and piling sometimes 10 and 12 of them into their small four-seater sedans. Insaf was one of them, my friend, who had been returning year upon year to help her fellow Iraqis. In one month, she raised more than $30,000 dollars and spent that summer crisscrossing the region assisting people. A handful of Dominican sisters who forgot that they themselves were displaced at one point were feeding 500 families. A Dominican brother named Michael Najib single-handedly rescued thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts out of the old clock church in Mosul. It's a church that 
um, ISIS bombed and destroyed about a year or a year and a half ago. He then turned, he told me he was very convicted and that he needed to do something about what he called the live leather, and that meant the people. And so he set up housing for refugees like this out of an unfinished hotel. And there's a hallway up there, and down there are some of the just makeshift camps. Even a year ago, you would still see these makeshift camps. There was a church, an alliance church, that worked with a church in Indiana to provide housing for 80 Christian families. This meant they could have a Bible study, and I was able to attend one night. And they continue coming together for fellowship and studying the Word of God, even though the lights were out. The evangelical pastor Yusuf Mati said about building a school to serve the displaced Yazidis. No one was really helping the Yazidis this way. Many of the children were orphaned. They desperately needed a place to be in the daytime. I was there when the school opened with 350 students. Here they are, some of them in a classroom, a couple of parents of these children. They were getting free backpacks that day, and a couple of parents told me they were so excited about their backpacks they couldn't sleep the night before. By that afternoon, the school had grown from 350 to 700 as local leaders came and said, would you take our children too? And by the next week, Yusuf Mahdi was approached by the displaced superintendent of education from the city of Mosul, a man who supervised the education of Sunni and Shia Muslim students. And he said, would you help us? And Yusuf said, I will. And so he opened a second track of classes in these tiny small rooms. And by the, the following week, the school of 350 had grown to a school of 2,000. And in a way only God can imagine and engineer, a school in the heart of the Middle East was full of Yazidi and Muslim students all learning together under the leadership of Christians. I feel a little bit like the writer of Hebrews because I actually could go on telling you stories like that. Christianity at its truest stretches and recasts our harshest realities. It turns them upside down and inside out. Its people take mustard seeds and with them move mountains. In the words of Nahum, the prophet, who is from this area, from Nineveh, Destruction brought comfort. Impossible hardships became possible to endure. Death had become life-giving for many of these survivors. And as Augustine has said, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit evil to exist. In Syria, the bishop of Aleppo said in the middle of all of this, because they were under an ISIS onslaught as well. He said, the anarchy of war allows you to perceive in even stronger terms the greatness of human dignity just when it seems so humiliated. Ensaf told Christian women who she gathered to meet with last year, she said, Daesh, referring to the Arabic term for ISIS, destroyed our culture. It destroyed our churches. 
and our lives. But women have life-giving power within them, and Dash cannot destroy the God who made us. They cannot kill our God-given identity, an identity that cannot be killed. In mid-October, just a month ago, the Iraq army began its long-awaited offensive, um, moving across Nineveh Plain and into Mosul, where they're fighting even today, even as we speak. Um, there have been some, some radio broadcasts that have come out. You can look these up on the internet of residents inside Mosul begging the Iraqi army to hurry up and finish because they are so desperate to be free from ISIS. Um, these armies have made remarkable process. They've, progress. They've liberated more than 50 villages in Nineveh Plain, and they are truly going door to door in Mosul and liberating the city neighborhood by neighborhood. But it's not easy, and it's not sure. The political situation, too, is dicey. Turkey has already made clear Turkey, keep in mind a U.S. ally and a member of NATO, has already made clear they don't intend to see Christians returned to this part of Iraq. The destruction, as you can see right here, a village that was occupied by ISIS that I was able to walk through, is enormous and will take years to rebuild from this. Um, the... F um, the churches, this is a church in Nineveh Plain in the city of Karakosh, a picture I was sent two weeks ago. The churches have been decimated. Will the people be able to return home? That's their question. And the question that looms right now. It is a question that requires political engagement, charity engagement, aid engagement, that it requires our hearts engagement and prayer engagement. Um, the Christians will understandably need a large measure of a security in order to feel like they can re return home. And the rebuilding effort will be vast. I believe that there's a challenge, actually, for the Western Church to see opportunity to bring good out of evil, as many of the Syrian and Iraqi Christians are doing to bind up wounds and broken hearts in the midst of genocide and all the kinds of destruction we've seen. But I also believe that there's a lesson here for our own country, binding up wounds of political strife, racial and cultural clashes, working to bring good out of evil here at home, and to not simply pity our persecuted brethren in the Middle East but to look to their example of what it means to embrace solely and single-mindedly our identity in Jesus Christ, to allow that to be preeminent above all the other challenges we face in this life. These people that we've been talking about may need us, but I believe they have much to teach us and that we need them too. So let me pray as we close. Father God in heaven, you are Lord over all, over Mesopotamia from centuries past to now and centuries future. You are Lord of all over this campus 
over our very lives, all through the past and today, and all into our future. Teach us to number our days. Teach us as we go about our business and our studies, our work and our time with our friends, and also our time of contending at the gate with our enemies. Teach us to number our days, to be humble before you because you are working um, in this time as well as in times past. To look to you in the word, to look to your Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us love for one another, to give us identities that are rooted in nothing but Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We thank you. Amen.